Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 17. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hello, I'm Eric Strong, assistant professor at Stanford University, and you're listening to Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. It's nice to have you back with me again. This episode has come out a little bit quicker than last time. Uh, I'm surprised myself, if I'm perfectly honest, because I am so busy at the moment. If you've listened to the podcast, you probably know that I've just changed departments. I've moved from the critical care environment to the emergency department Um, and that means massive changes for me. I'm ostensibly there as what they're calling a junior advanced clinical practitioner, although I still feel that um, I'm entitled to the trainee title for a little bit longer. I've got loads and loads to learn. Um, I'm busy trying to get my portfolio sorted so I can um, have lots of evidence for all the skills I've already got. And then uh, find some holes that I might need to fill, uh, that I definitely need to fill. I'm hoping to do a minor injuries course next year, uh, minor illness as well. Um, I'm going to brush up on my examination skills. I've already started seeing some patients with very close supervision, to be fair, um, as you would expect. Um, Using some of my examination skills and my history taking skills. And I'm loving it at the moment. Uh, I'm having a fabulous time. It's nice to be in such an advanced role in such a busy and dynamic department. There are potentially lots of big changes coming in that department. Can't say too much at the moment because they're not uh, firm plans, but uh, there seem to be plans afoot most definitely. And hopefully I'm going to be able to tell you some stuff about that at some point. They are an enormously hardworking team. That's something that's become very evident very quickly. But they're also a very happy team from what I can tell. I've been made to feel very, very welcome and I'm having a lovely time there. So if any of you guys are listening, thank you so much. I'm really enjoying myself so far. This podcast, what this one is about, is an interview with a gentleman called Simon Cooper. Now, Simon Cooper is an associate professor in Monash University, which is in Australia. And I first came across Simon's name uh, from one of the first people I interviewed, Robin Davis, who's a resuscitation officer at the hospital I work at. And he mentioned that I might want to speak to Simon. And Simon is responsible for something called First to Act. This is a website you can go to. It's first, as in F-I-R-S-T, two, the letter two, sorry, the number two, and then actweb.com. So first to actweb, A-C-T-W-E-B dot com, all one word. If you just type in first to act in Google, to be honest, that will probably take you there as well. 
but it's about um, a simulation, an online simulation learning package trying to help nurses to learn how to identify and treat the deteriorating patient. It's a free resource and it's very good. It's a series of um, teaching videos, basically, um, using actors um, to simulate situations which you are then tested on on your interactions, your interventions. And it's an excellent site. Um, I would highly recommend you visit it. If you're a student nurse, if you're a staff nurse or any kind of nurse that's going to encounter this situation that isn't that familiar with it, then this is a great learning resource. And as I say, it's going to cost you nothing. So this is a conversation I had with Simon um, about that, amongst one or two other things as well. And some of the principles underlying the resuscitation process. You may know that I have a particular interest in resuscitation, mainly because I um, attend a lot of resuscitations as part of my uh, role in the critical care uh, practitioner role, which, uh, as I say, I've moved on from. But even so, I'm an ALS instructor as well. So uh, I have a lot of interest in this subject and the way that we manage the teamwork. So without further ado, let's listen to the conversation Simon and I have. Um, he does refer to, we refer to one, other, one or two other things in the interview as well, but all of those you can find in the show notes. Really interesting conversation. Let's get started. My name is Simon Cooper. I used to work um, in the UK and um, trained originally as an intensive care nurse um, and worked across the south of England for quite a few years. Ended up as one of the first resuscitation officers in the UK for 10 years at the um, Derrickville Hospital in Plymouth, uh, which is where I took up my interest in it. He interested around resuscitation um, and acute care. Um, while I was there, I did a PhD in resuscitation leadership at the University of Exeter. Um, I also worked for West Country Ambulance as head of education for a short while, um, and for the University of Plymouth, running a nurse practitioner pathway. And just under seven years ago, I moved to Australia, where I now am, um, in Victoria, just east of Melbourne, at a place called Berwick, uh, where I'm head of campus for a school of nursing. My main interests are around, uh, or my main research interests and teaching and learning interests are around uh, patient deterioration, resuscitation, um, and teamwork, um, and all related factors related to teamwork, including uh, situation awareness. And those are my kind of main publication kind of interests. Um, and those all follow on to my teaching and learning interests, and particularly a program called First to Act. First to Act, yeah. That's a really interesting project, and I've actually run through a couple of the videos as well. Um, how long ago did this start, and what was the driving force behind that? I mean, I'm probably aware of some of the driving forces, but if you could just explain to me what made you start it as a as an online project like this, um, rather than just a, a, a more local project. Okay, so I'll give you a wee bit of background before I lead in specifically to the web-based form. So from a personal point of view, having worked in resuscitation for many years, and most of your listeners will know that the survival rate from resuscitation is generally very poor and hasn't improved significantly in the last uh, so many decades. 
Um, and therefore, obviously, internationally, the key issue is to ensure that patients don't arrest and to manage patient deterioration properly. Um, the international literature is now, has a, is now a tranche of literature called the Failure to Rescue Literature, uh, which unfortunately tells us that um, nurses and other healthcare professionals are not good at identifying when patients are deteriorating and are not good at managing it when they do. And I'm talking more generally about ward-based situations rather than the specialist ED, ED departments or A&E departments. And so with that issue, those issues in mind, about six years ago, we started investigating various different ways of teaching students and qualified staff on how to manage patient deterioration. And we did it in a series of ways that, again, many of your listeners will be familiar with, which includes face-to-face simulation using mannequins, but also using patient actors, sometimes called standardized patients or simulated patients. And we found that over time, teaching with mannequins wasn't nearly as believable, i.e. the fidelity was lower uh, with using mannequins. And we now use, we basically use patient actors almost all the time to simulate patient deterioration in simulation centers. And that has been significant benefit to most of our students. But the issue with that is the feasibility, because obviously putting in groups of students, or maybe singular, or groups of three students through simulation with a patient actor is time-consuming and requires hiring an actor and all those kind of issues of running that kind of setting. So with those issues in mind, we started thinking about other, what people are probably called blended learning approaches, where you do online simulation then you follow that with face-to-face simulation and hopefully the online simulation reduces the time it takes to reach competency and face-to-face practice. With that background in mind the idea was to produce some software which was high fidelity which would enhance knowledge. It's obviously software so it isn't going to give you a chance to practice the skills but it gives you a lead-in to then go and practice the skills and hopefully be much safer. So having done a series of work which we called First to Act, um, published quite a few studies on the outcomes of face-to-face, we were then given a quite a big grant from the Australian uh, Office for Teaching and Learning uh, to develop this online software. And that's kind of my leading point. Perhaps one of the ways that we're going, um, certainly in this country, is perhaps one of the ways you've tried in the past and you say that you you didn't find it that useful because the mannequins that we're getting these days are getting more and more, let's, shall we call the world realistic? I don't know, but they're, you know, they're getting more high fidelity. These things are talking to you, they're blinking, they're whatever. Would you feel then that some of the high fidelity simulation suites that are being set up with mannequins are not necessarily the route you would go down or the ideal route? What's your feelings on them, Is I suppose, ultimately, is what I'm asking you. I, th- I think it depends on the context of what point you're trying to teach. So if you're trying to teach um, a nurse endoscopist how to do a colonoscopy, um, then the simulation equipment available for that with fantastic cameras and those kind of issues will work, I would suggest, very well. 
um, not the first endoscopist, but um, so for that kind of acute unifocal kind of technical teaching in that kind of micro area, I can't particularly see a problem with that. I think that I'm sure that works very well. The issue, the issue for me is more about moving from the resuscitation arena to the arena where the patient is actually alive and they're going to talk to you. For me, in my work around patient deterioration, the transfer from using an advanced life support mannequin and using that to teach patient deterioration doesn't work well. Um, and it doesn't work well because we've interviewed numerous students who've done focus groups and said, what didn't work well about, this, about the simulation? And usually they'll say, oh, it's not really believable. The patient isn't sweaty. They're not diaphoretic. You know, they're not talking to me. They're not moaning and groaning. And if they are moaning and groaning, we know it's the trainer in the next door room talking through the, the mannequin's mouth. Just that hasn't got quite the right reality. They're not cool to touch. All those kind of issues. In general, I think you need to fit the simulation to the needs of the situation. The downside of using patient actors is you can't get a patient actor to simulate it that they're hypervolemic. Um, so in other words, if, you take, if you're getting a student to take blood pressure, the trainer has to say the blood pressure is 98 or whatever. Um, so that is a downside of it. And it can cause some um, interruption in flow. And students will say that to you. They will say, oh, yeah, but I took the blood pressure. And somebody else told me it was something else. So that does cause some forms of confusion. But in general, in our experience, using patient actors that are well-trained are able to deliver the same scenario consistently are significantly better in patient deterioration scenarios. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't use mannequins in resuscitation. Mannequins work brilliantly. In perhaps some of the anesthesia work, there's no reason why you wouldn't use a mannequin for you know, practicing intubation, all those kind of things, because all of those skills you couldn't do on a real patient. So in, in summary, I would say you need to meet the needs of the situation with appropriate tools. So would it be fair to say then, do you think that probably one of the strengths to high fidelity simulation based training is that some of the technical things you can learn actually to a fairly high level, but the, the, the human factors, the communication factors are probably best taught in a different way. I was chatting to, I don't know if you know Ken Spearpoint who works uh, over in the UK. He uh, runs a master's level course at Imperial College London and I was chatting to him about this and he's very much focused on some of the human factors as well. I was also at Preston Hospital uh, a few weeks ago and chatting to their simulation centre staff over there and they're very much focused on teaching some of their nursing staff and their medical staff some of the human factors that are involved. They're going into things like uh, the communication factors with the team leader uh, and I, one of the things that sticks in my head is that very often the team leader is responsible for things like firing arrows in the air is the way they express it. So, you know, giving out lots of different instructions to no one specifically. Is this something you think with actor-based learning and with your online learning you can improve upon rather than just focusing on the technical skills with the, the mannequins? Um, I, think, I, think, I think I've got some crossover. In general, um, I just plug a tool that we use, which is called Team Emergency Assessment Measure, which is um, a non-technical tool. You use the word human factors, so human factors are non-technical skills, very similar. 
we would use team for assessing resuscitation teams on technical skills performance, their leadership, task performance, etc. What mannequin you use, or whether you use a patient actor, for teamwork skills possibly doesn't matter too much, apart from the, especially in resuscitation, because the communication you're measuring is between the team members, not necessarily team members and to patient, especially if the patient is being resuscitated. Yes, I think you can probably use run scenarios for non-technical skills or human factors with all of the above, dependent on what you're aiming to achieve. So I don't think that one excludes the other. Okay, so when you're talking about the team, and, and again, I've got the web page up here and we'll link to this in the, the, the show notes once the podcast is actually released. When you're talking about the team, you've got a list here, table one, team categories and elements. What What is your focus with this particular program? You're presumably trying to get the team to work if more effectively. Where do you think we fall down fairly regularly in team skills in the health service? Um, so with, with the document look, you're looking at, which is specifically designed for teamwork assessment in acute events, it was originally developed for resuscitation events only, but it has been used in, for example, with MET teams and those kind of areas. So with the tool you're referring to, uh, predominantly the main reason that teams fail in that situation, and you'll guess what I'm about to say, is leadership. So the fundamental requirement of acute team leadership is a command and control model. And so if any of your listeners have done ALS-based courses, Fundamentally, what the team leader needs to be doing is standing at the bottom of the bed, hands behind his, his or her back, um, and directing the team appropriately with a hands-off approach, which is quite a different approach to how you'd manage other situations in the NHS or anywhere else. It's just based on the fact that it needs to be really task-focused, very directional, not one-way direction. You do need feedback from your staff as well, but very clear um, and controlled commands. So for the example I'd use is often you see an experienced leader say, can I have the adrenaline please? And three nurses run out to get the adrenaline. So even if you don't know the team's names, you look somebody in the eye and you say, can I have the uh, adrenaline please? So it's task orientated and task orientated from the start. So in those kind of situations, I think over the last 10, 20 years, teams are much better at being managed in that situation. Remember, in many places across the world, resuscitation teams are not teams that necessarily know each other. They, they're not like an ED team where you all work together every day of the week. They're randomly drawn together to, um, to respond to a event in a general ward. So the issue is there about the leadership is even more important because they have to me, one of the most important phases in the team management, and this goes back to what you've just said, is that often that team is drawn together from people that probably have not met each other during the working day and may not have even met each other at all. Um, one of the key stages to me in the management of an effective team is those first 15, 30 seconds to a minute whereby the team leader A establishes themselves, their role and everybody else's roles. And I often see that very, very poorly handled. And I'm probably, I, you know, I, I, I put myself in this category as well in that it's, it's all too easy to turn up in an arrest situation 
and focus on your role rather than necessarily establishing the team as a whole. Um, how do we go about improving that? Is that just through continued training or is it about changing the way we train people? Because the ALS, and, and funnily enough, I'm teaching on one of these tomorrow. The ALS, of course, by its very nature, is very focused on the resuscitation of the arrested patient mainly, isn't it? I mean, it does talk about trying to rescue the deteriorated patient as well, but the main focus is still on the ALS algorithm and working your way down it. Should there be an element whereby we actually focus on the management of the team from the start and establishing some of the principles to get that team working more effectively? Long question, I know, but what what's your thoughts on that? So um, I agree with you 100%. So the issue is addressing leadership with immediacy. So you're quite right, you need to set the scene from the start, and I'll perhaps come back to how you may do that in a minute. But the key things is around making it very clear who the leader is. Um, so again, in those teams that don't need you, know, don't know each other, you would say, okay, I'm the registrar, I'm, I'll be leading you today, so you may need to be very explicit about who the leader, leader is. And you need to possibly allocate roles. And as you know, across the world, many people wear bibs or hats to allocate roles appropriately, which is a helpful start. As to training, I think the training, and I believe UK ALS courses now use a scenario which covers non-technical skills. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, that training will be good. What I think is missing is that um, people rarely give feedback to the leader after an event. And I remember a couple of critical events from the stations I've been to recently, where if somebody hadn't fed back to that individual about their um, poor performance, that performance would have continued forever. So part of the issue, especially, you, you can use the uh, a link with the aircraft industry. The aircraft industry is designed to enable cockpit crews to have the right to challenge the captain over any event and we need to learn from the aircraft industry about those issues because unless we can address with the consultant his failure to do A, B or C in the whistle station then those, those performances or performances will continue. And, and that's, that's a whole different uh, can of worms really isn't it because you know it, it's very hard for um, any member of staff to, to necessarily challenge the person in the, in the position um, of authority. Um, is that something that you try and ad address as well during some of the training, you know, the, challenging somebody who's in a position more senior than you who, for whatever reason, obviously needs a little bit of feedback stroke performance management? And if so, what are some of the most advantageous techniques to do that? Because I certainly, I know I would, I find that difficult. Um, and I would imagine there's a lot of junior staff who would also find that quite difficult. I suppose it is a two-way street. I'm pretty sure on Nerdell's website there's a good video clip from a aircraft captain whose wife died through a range of non-technical skills failures. Um, and so um, listeners might want to access that to see some examples of how to address seniors, challenge them. Um, I think it is the use of words and confidence, and it's perhaps about, can I suggest, you know, how about doing this, having the confidence to make those um, make those points to a senior? In my past experience, I've perhaps used language like that, but what I've always done 
to save face to seniors is to address it after the event in private. That takes a lot of confidence, but I think it's the right way to go. So that's one side of um, addressing the issue. The key thing is the leader has to give you the right to address the issue. Mm -hmm. um, so the onus is on the leader to say, okay, thank you very much. Um, is there anything you can suggest I do now? What have we done? So I say, of course, we're going to start this station, this patient deterioration situation. Um, please feel free to address any gaps in my knowledge. So in other words, the, the hierarchy needs to be um, flattened uh, to ensure communication is, is effective. And I think I think from experience, that's something we're actually quite poor on, isn't it? That um, I, again, going to a lot of arrests, I think one of the first things we do is once the patient is declared um, non-rescuable, is that we tend to put everything down and, and turn around and walk away and go back to our day job, as it were. And perhaps one of the things we need to learn to do is to walk away as a team and just spend, you know, a minute or two just saying exactly what you've just said. And I think that's a great way of doing it. If the team leader can brace themselves and say. Is there anything I didn't do? Is there anything you can suggest? Is there anything that we as a team could have done better? Perhaps to reflect it on the team and not necessarily just on the leader. And just to go back to a point as well, you talk about feedback after the event. Um, one of the things I think we're not so great at is actually feedback during the event as well. I know as a team leader that we allocate tasks, but sometimes some of those tasks aren't fed back to us either, you know. So I will ask somebody to do something they don't tell me when it's been done, so I'm never quite sure whether that role has been completed or not because I'm trying to focus on the 12 other things that are happening as well. So one of my focuses in an arrest situation is to say, Jonathan, can you do this? And when you've done it, can you feed back to me to let you know, let me know that it's been done? Otherwise, I think these, these things tend to get missed quite quickly, don't they? And hopefully you can then start to provide some kind of structure to the conversation to make sure that it's a two-way process rather than just me barking out commands and then just hoping things are done. So those are excellent points. And the kind of podcast, if I could summarise it, is team situation awareness. So in essence, the suggestion is that um, team members and the leader should summarise where we're at and what um, predict future events. So in other words... We should say, Jonathan, will you do chest compressions for so long? Tell me when you're tired. We will do this for another two rounds, and then we'll reconsider whether we're going to stop or not. So a good leader will have that interaction, and they will hopefully take on board feedback from others and en enhance people's overall awareness of the situation. And when you get to an arrest situation as well, you'll often find that the first couple of cycles, it's all a bit frantic. But then if it becomes a prolonged one, those two-minute cycles... I, I, I don't want to use the word boring because there's obviously there's a patient's, patient's life at risk here, but it becomes a bit more subdued, a bit quieter. And to me, that's the period when the team leader starts talking to the team in a more effective way and starts establishing a routine. And I heard on a podcast recently that one of the team leaders almost keeps up a constant communication process. OK, so I'm doing this now. Can you tell me at the airway, is there any problems? Is there anything you want me to do? Is there anything you think the rest? And just to keep this constant you know, sometimes it becomes almost like a silent process that we go through. We talk about the four H's and the four T's. Everyone immediately leaps on the four H's and four T's as something to hang your communication process on. But don't that sometimes to me actually stops the communication process rather than moves it forward because it becomes the focus of the conversation rather than interacting with each other. That's an interesting point. I haven't thought about it like that, but... um. 
Yeah, I can see your point, and that um, rigorous adherence to guidelines may mislead the two-way process, is perhaps your kind of suggestion. Yes, it may do. I think, I think feedback, two-way and giving feedback in, that, in the way you suggest is important. I would also caution that it's not a, it's still a command and control process mm -hmm. for effective speed. And therefore, initially, you've just got to be directive, which wasn't really your illustration, because what you were saying was that on, at later, uh, as time goes on, things settle, storming, forming, and norming, and therefore yeah. you have time at that later point to be more flexible and, and less directive. So yes, you know, I completely agree. Okay, so let's just think ahead a little now. Presumably, you have some focus to the future regarding team working and resuscitation skills and where it's going to go in the future. What, what do you see happening? What's, where is current progress taking us as far as team working in the deteriorating patients going, for example? In the resuscitation field with teamwork, I think probably the future is around the need to flatten hierarchies. It's absolutely mm -hmm. essential and a much greater need and much greater demand for, let's say, a higher kudos for non-technical skills. Mm -hmm. So we know that, I think the figures are around, um, uh, well, in the aircraft industry, for example, I think about 75% of accidents are due to non-technical skills, failures, and therefore, probably in medicine, we've probably got similar figures, nobody knows. So I think the focus needs to be around flattened hierarchy, better measures of team performance, and much better the human factors and non-technical skills training, which some are beginning to introduce. I think gradually people are becoming aware of that, but it is a very uh, slow process. In the education field around resuscitation and uh, patient deterioration, I think different flexible teaching and learning styles, uh, learning processes for different learning styles are really important. And I think we perhaps fail to address the innovative alternative techniques that are available because I think they do have impact. Say, for example, I'll give you a few, a few examples. In acute deterioration from a systematic review we've just finished, covering patients both and women who deteriorate in obstetric settings. There's only, there's only actually 22 published papers which indicate a change of practice, not a change of learning. So lots of papers address the issue that people learn more because they've done A, B, and C. What we really need to address and where people are beginning to focus on is how does this intervention or training scheme make a difference to patients What's going to happen on the shop floor if we do A, B, or C? Um, so at the moment, there's only 22 papers in the patient deterioration field that actually address that issue and demonstrate that simulation does make a difference to practice. There's a need for much more of that, and I can see that as being the future. In the simulation field, it's my specialist interest. In the simulation field, for example, in a study on shoulder dystocia, there's an example where just, I think it was one simulation over 40 minutes or something had a significant difference on the management of shoulder dissociate. So it actually doesn't necessarily take a lot of training, but it needs mm -hmm. to be the right form of training. 
Um, so I think there needs to be a focus with that as well. With First to Act Web, which is the online example we previously talked about, so First to Act Web has definitely had an impact on teaching and learning. It does make a difference to knowledge outcomes before and afterwards. And I think that probably with demands on educational providers, feasibility of education, um, and the need to increase clinical placement hours, um, or rather um, the lack of clinical placement hours, there will be increasing increasing demands on educational educational providers to provide alternative means of, of um, teaching and learning for clinical practice. So I think web-based versions may be very useful. They don't teach mm-hmm. everything, but it may, as I said previously, reduce the time it takes to reach an occupancy. So in general, I think there's lots of potential issues, but I'll just summarise that last chat. I think the key focus for teamwork must be about open, flat hierarchies, and the focus for enhanced education must be multiple methods of teaching and the best methods of teaching. And we need to think of many methods to teach for varying learning styles. Do you get involved at all with teaching student nurses some of these skills? Because one of the things I'm also aware of is that um, during an arrest situation, the students and student nurses are very much spectators. And I hesitate to say this, but I think possibly one of the things they see is sometimes more bad practice than good. And this kind of reinforces the very things we don't want them to do. At what stage do the student nurses get involved in, not necessarily the, the ALS algorithm, but the practice of working within a team in a stressful environment over there? Is that something that's addressed quite early? In Australia, I would say that it's possibly not well addressed. Um, there are now some some good online software which is uh, uses pause and dis- discuss techniques with um, good examples of teamwork uh, teamwork on videos that have just been introduced into Australia and mainly to third year students. Mm-hmm. There are some face to face scenarios that educators probably run about the management of, uh, of team based events that are acute. First to Act software, uh, the web-based version doesn't address that, but the face-to-face version does from the teamwork. So in general, yes, it may be addressed as for third years for acute events, but it's not the biggest part of the curriculum. Okay, they've got so many other things to learn, of course, haven't they? It's just something I'm often aware of in an arrest situation that I have these interested spectators that uh, perhaps I need to be a little bit more proactive at getting involved because... Uh, uh, apart from anything else, um, I'm always, I never fail to be impressed by the fact that if you encourage a student nurse in the right way, they'll grow and flourish uh, right in front of your eyes. And I think that's something that uh, we all need to be aware of sometimes in, in these stressful situations. I wanted very quickly, because I've already taken quite a lot of your time, Simon, and I'm very grateful for that. I wanted very quickly, because this intrigued me a little bit as well, the eye tracking technology in uh, the health professions was something that caught my eye at the bottom of your uh, your signature on your email and I very quickly went to the the web page and again I'll I'll link to that. That looks like a fascinating project. Is that something that's still ongoing or is it uh, it, something that's uh, since been and gone? Is is this something that's still working? I'll try and give you the short reply to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, The the site you're referring to was a a study about 
if we used eye tracking technology, and when I refer to eye, eye tracking technology at the moment, I'm referring to some glasses produced by Toby, who's a Swedish company, which track the movement of your right eye with some very sophisticated uh, software. Uh, what we were interested in is with groups of paramedics and groups of nurses, if you put them through, let's say, three scenarios, and you fed back to them using the video record of their eye tracking, whether their situation awareness and their performance would increase significantly through the three scenarios. Straight answer is it does. Is obviously if you give detailed video reflective feedback, um, it's saying why were you looking here, why didn't you look here, all those kind of issues, it's really informative for students. More specifically though, what we identified is that there was a significant area of interest difference between paramedics and nurses. Okay. Explain it clearly. So when you're doing eye tracking work, you have to designate, you designate an area of interest. So we were looking at acute management of patients, let's say it was an MI. You walk into the room and what do you focus on? So as, as researchers, we designated an area of interest of the patient's head, the patient's trunk, the defib, and the assistant, for example. So let's say you take those four areas of interest and you compare them between paramedics and nurses. You might not be surprised, but paramedics were much better at focusing, for example, on the monitor, uh, focusing on the, uh, on the chest movement, for example. Um, did make eye contact, but they didn't spend too much time there. And they very rarely looked at their assistant. Nurses, however, less experienced at managing emergency situations, were much more likely to make eye contact and much more likely to look desperately for help to their assistant. <laughs> so that, those were kind of those findings, which some of those aren't on the website yet, but most of it is. So that kind of technology may be useful for people for looking at feedback and enhancing feedback in those kind of situations. You do need to bear in mind that Toby eye tracking glasses are exceptionally expensive and you may, if, if anybody wanted to play with this idea, you can buy a pair of uh, point of view video glasses for about $150, £100, uh, which is a pair of glasses with a video camera. It doesn't eye track, but basically you could use the same thing as a debriefing technique. So anybody could use it, you could wear them in a resuscitation, you could take off the glasses, stick them in the computer and you can replay the whole thing from the leader's point of view. Particularly useful for debriefing techniques. Um, or you could pay the money and use eye tracking. The alternative is you can use um, eye tracking, which is the most common way, uh, which is a little uh, device that you put under your visual display unit on your computer and it eye tracks everything you're looking at on the computer. Referring back to first to act software program, we have a PhD student who's using eye tracking to analyze exactly where students look on the video web-based simulations. So she's tracking their focus of attention, uh, where they click, where they don't click, and in essence their area of interest throughout the whole program, which will give us much uh, Are you getting any early results from that? Anything Anything you can talk about? Is there... No, nothing specifically, just at the moment. Okay, cool. 
But but that that sounds absolutely fascinating, and it's really interesting to hear that uh, you know those those healthcare professionals that are perhaps taught a little bit about managing the acute patient have a different focus of interest from those nursing um, staff who are not so used to it that they, like you say, seek desperately for help because they're not. I think is is that a fault in in the training? Is that or is that because we're employing different people with different outlooks? Is it because they're in uh, I don't. I don't want to call them the caring profession because that infers that paramedics don't care, and of course they do. But that's common, the commonly used phrase. Is 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 that the issue? What what do you put that down to? Do you think? Um, possibly all of the above, as you've suggested. But I think specifically in the one example I've given you, is it's because the paramedics, and I'm referring to third year student paramedics and third year nurses. Uh, third year paramedics are predominantly taught probably 80% of their training, to manage acute events. So a third-year student nurse will be taught to manage the whole remit of patient care, and what, 5% of it will be acute events. So, and is this, is this something you can then reflect in the training that you offer to somebody to manage in an acute event? You say, okay, I don't know if you want to be completely prescriptive about this, and it probably isn't reasonable to be so, but to give them some kind of format to say, when you manage the acute patient, perhaps you should be looking at this, this, and this in turn, or focusing on this, this, and this. Is that something that's useful, or is that just too prescriptive and not likely to work? Um, to a degree, you could do that, depending on the context. Uh, but clearly, uh, what would be useful is to eye track an expert and compare that with a novice and use the expert's view, eye tracking view, to train novices. So experts are much more likely to do this. Just look, look where they're tracking, you know. Look what they're doing. You've just given me an idea for a research project. Eye track <laughs> experts, not novices. That sounds like a fascinating study. I might have to speak to my resource officer about that one. Thanks for your time, Simon. I uh, hope you have a good day and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Nice to talk to you. Cheers. Smack US. Chicago. June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Nixon. Flower. Weingart. May. Rohi. Malimat. Lavatan. Reed. Carly. Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US. Chicago. Book it now. Excellent. Thanks, Simon. That was really interesting. It's nice to hear somebody else's views on the subject. Um, it took a bit of work to set that interview up, mainly because uh, the first time we tried to do it, I had swapped a shift and forgot that I was meant to be speaking to Simon. So in the middle of the night, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, I'm meant to be speaking to Simon. So he very kindly agreed to rearrange. I'm really grateful to him. Thank you very much for that, Simon. And, and as I say, very interesting to talk to you. Just to add a few details, if you wanted to subscribe to my podcasts, you can do that via iTunes. If you go into podcasts in iTunes and search for Critical Care Practitioner, they're very easy to subscribe to. While you're there, if you wanted to leave me a rating and a review, that helps my searchability in iTunes and helps more people discover the podcast as well. So I'd be grateful if you could find a few minutes just to do that and say something nice about me. That would be lovely. You can also find me on my website, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk 
Um, I'm potentially going to be redesigning that website sometime in the near future if I can find myself a few days to do that. So if it has gone down for a little while, please don't panic. It will be back up again, but hopefully it might look a lot different when it is back up. While you're on my website, you can sign up for the newsletter that I tried to send out fairly regularly. There's a free resource if you do. There's five research articles that I think you should know that I've tried to sum up for you. And you can have that for nothing if I can have your email address and we can keep in touch that way. That would be nice. If there is anyone out there that's got any burning issues they want to talk about, then make yourself known. I'd be more than happy to come and talk to you topics around emergency medicine as well now obviously with my change in departments and critical care I'm never going to lose those roots I've always had a fabulous time in critical care and I've been there for 18 years so I think it's uh, it's through me like a sticker rock now so nice to speak to you again and hopefully I'll see you again in the next podcast bye bye